0: Thanks, Hallett. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd like to give a special welcome to Stephen and Sato. We're uh, delighted to see you guys and want you to know that uh, as we read all the news of the earthquake and tsunami in Japan, we thought of you guys and prayed for you and uh, prayed for your safety. So it's good to have you here with us this morning. Sometimes reading newspaper headlines can be a little bit entertaining, not always, but sometimes, how about these headlines? 4-H girls win prizes for fat calves. <laughs> After detour to California, shuttle returns to Earth. Astronaut takes blame for gas in spacecraft. Hospitals are sued by seven-foot doctors. Now, this is where you have to have the emphasis on the correct syllable, right? As in this following headline, juvenile court to try shooting defendant. L.A. voters approve urban renewal by landslide. I like that one. Lawyers give poor free legal advice. Local high school dropouts cut in half. Basic kids, you better study. Man struck by lightning faces battery charge. March planned for next August. I've been known to procrastinate, but that's a little much. Milk drinkers are turning to powder. Got milk? And finally, panda mating fails. Veterinarian takes over. (laughs) Those are good, huh? These headlines are funny, but most days... News headlines paint a little bit more challenging picture of what's going on in our world, don't they? If you did nothing but listen to or watch or read the news and you had no other perspective on the world, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to maintain any kind of positive attitude about our world or how easy it would be maybe to despair if you read the news headlines on a daily basis. Here are a few headlines I came across just this week. Death toll reaches 14,435 from the great, great Quake tsunami in Japan. Home prices falling in most major cities. Economists temper forecast for recovery. Gas tops key four price mark in Ohio be that here soon in Tulsa. At least 400 civilians killed in Syria. Revolt. Tornadoes and storms ripped through the south, at least 284 dead. Of course, that headline was a couple days ago that. Death toll is above 300 now. Anybody depressed yet? That's why I gave you a good laugh at the start because I knew that these headlines were coming. Anybody worried or scared yet? You know, we can go from the larger level of things to worry about, things going on around the world and things that impact much, if not all, of the world, down to the smaller level, and that's us. The things that touch our lives personally, illnesses, jobs, or lack thereof our personal finances, family troubles, what would the headlines in your life look like? How about mother ill? How about daughter prodigal? How about husband hospitalized, sister dies? How are we to respond to these challenges in the world, these challenges also in our personal lives? Well, first I'm gonna give you the short answer, which is the best answer. And it's really the theme of what we're going to look at this morning. In all these things that we look at this morning, whether it's on the macro scale, the worldwide scale, or the individual lives that we all live and all the things that we face, God says, trust me. He says, trust me. God's short answer to all of these questions is, trust me. Trust me. But... We have to ask the question, why? Why should we trust God? I think there are many answers to that question, why we should trust God. But for at least one longer answer to this, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I'll read it if you don't. And as you're turning, let me give you just a little bit of quick background to the story going on here. This is the prophet Isaiah, and he was writing here to a people who were in exile, Israel and Judah were living away from their homeland under an evil empire, having been driven from their homelands, and they were virtually powerless to do anything at all on their own. They'd seen their fair share of people killing people, their own brand of terror. I'm guessing that many of the people of Israel and Judah, at the time of the message of Isaiah chapter 40, experienced the same kind of despair that people of our day might had after we review the horrors of the daily news or we consider maybe the difficult challenges in our own individual personal lives. Without the perspective that the Word of God that can provide for us, it's easy for us to become hopeless. It's easy for us to despair of ever seeing anything positive happen. It's easy to think We are powerless, and this world is a hopeless place. Where is God? Where is he in all this stuff? What we must remember is something that we're going to discover this morning as we read through our text from Isaiah chapter 40. What this chapter reveals, among many other things, is that God sees the whole panorama of life and history in a way that you and I just can't see. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter on your own sometime this week, but we won't take time to do that this morning. However, we're going to read several lines from this chapter. We're going to read much of it, so hang with me. Starting with verse 1, Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Well, that's a good start, isn't it? God comforting his people. Jumping down to verse 5, it says, The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. And then the last part of verse 6 says, All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And then jump down to verse 12, and let's listen to this word picture that Isaiah paints here of God, beginning with verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? And then jump down to verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. We could probably spend several weeks developing some of these themes. But for the purposes of this morning's message, I'd like to take you just through several points here. One of the things we see here is that our God is a big God. He's in charge of, he's the creator of, he's the sustainer of all the big things. Remember the great truth in the old children's song? Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. You remember that? The things he's made out of nothing, like the universe, like the billions and trillions of stars he created. He didn't just create them. He knows them by name. He's so big that nations are as nothing. Nothing but dust on the scales in comparison to him. These are the same nations that we worry about having nuclear weapons. These are the same nations that breed and support terrorists. The same nations that despise Christianity. To God, those nations and our nation are smaller than dust. That's our great God. That's his big picture view, his macro view of of, uh, creation. Macro means very large in scale. It means very large in scale, in scope, or capability. But after all these verses that we just read from Isaiah chapter 40 telling us how big God is, Isaiah doesn't just leave us there. After all, just the fact that God is huge and powerful, that fact alone, the fact that we're like grasshoppers, that doesn't give us much comfort all by itself, does it? In fact, that could kind of add to our fears. After all, you can step on grasshoppers. I can and you can, so if we're like that to God... But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He talks of little bitty us, you and me, God's people, those who hope in the Lord or wait on the Lord. He says he'll sustain us. He says he'll strengthen us. He says he'll comfort us. Even though he knows each of the stars by name, and I think we could agree that that's a pretty big task, he also knows each of us by name. He knows us intimately. He knows the number of hairs. On our heads. He's a vast God in charge of a vast universe. But at the same time, He's interested in little us. We're small. We're minute in scope or capability. We're not that macro view. If nations are like dust on the scale, then you and I aren't much in the grand picture of things. Yet, He loves us, He cares for us, He strengthens us. He sustains us. He helps us. I think the people of Israel suffered from one of the same problems that we do. We see this in Isaiah chapter 40. We see that they underestimated God. Underestimating God, that's one of the themes of this chapter in Isaiah. The people of Israel had clearly underestimated the God that they served. Their God, as one book title says, was too small. It's clear from verse 27 that they had questioned God and they had questioned that the way that God works in their lives. We do that sometimes too. We see in verse 27, "Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord; my cause is disregarded by my God." That is we seem to say God can't see what's going on in my life and he doesn't seem to care. The people had underestimated God. They'd underestimated his power. They'd underestimated his love. And this chapter reminds them why they shouldn't underestimate him. Because in all this, God says, trust me. He says, trust me. God says, I know best. Look at who I am. Trust me. Let's go back to the beginning again and look at some key verses. Verse 1, this whole chapter, this whole chapter, Isaiah chapter 40, is about comfort. It says, comfort my people. The truths in Isaiah chapter 40 were designed to build confidence in our great God. And as a result of that confidence, to bring comfort. They needed comfort because they were separated from their homeland. They needed comfort because they were suffering. They needed comfort because they didn't see how that suffering, the horrible things that they had endured and were enduring, would ever end. They didn't understand We sometimes need comfort too, don't we? In the larger sense, as we look at world events, kind of like we did for a moment this morning, as well as in the personal sense, in those things that, well, they may not impact world history, but they certainly have a huge impact on our lives as individuals and as families. We need comfort and encouragement. So God says, comfort my people. Part of the reason we can find comfort is because of what's spoken in verse 5. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. That's not verse 5. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. Notice, he doesn't say it might be. He doesn't say it could be. He says the glory of the Lord will be revealed. We can count on it. We can depend on it. And as we see who God is, as He's described with such clarity in these verses and the verses following, it gives that statement great credibility. God can do what He says He will do. Now, as we've already noted, we're not unimportant or insignificant at all. We're not unimportant or insignificant in God's plans and His care for us. But in the scheme of His grand plan, His outworking of the big picture, His macro view of time and eternity were nothing by comparison. That's why Isaiah writes in comparisons and questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Anybody here done any of those things? I didn't think so. Anybody here think they can advise God on how things ought to be done? Even a man on earth as powerful as the president of the most powerful nation on earth has advisors. Who's God's advisor? God, I think you should do such and such with these Muslims who want to destroy us. That's my advice to God. God, I think you shouldn't have allowed those tornadoes to devastate Alabama and the deep south last week. God, I don't think you should have allowed Tom Buck to be in ICU this long. But Isaiah says, who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who taught the Lord the right way? This passage shows that these exiles weren't automatically inclined to trust God. They had to be persuaded Sometimes if we're honest in the midst of these things, we too must be challenged in our thinking. We too must be persuaded of God's ability to handle things, even when he doesn't fully explain himself. Essentially, from verse 12 on through verse 26, Isaiah is dealing with these big-picture questions that we all have from time to time. In this chapter, he moves from creation to nations and back to creation to respond to these doubts, these questions that the people had. If we're honest, we have to say we sometimes have these questions too, especially in light of the world events that we see every day in the news, but also in just the day-to-day things that we deal with in our own personal lives. Some of us have these kind of questions this morning. God answers our questions with these questions in Isaiah Chapter 40, much like he answered many of Job's questions. But the bottom line, the point of God's response is this. Trust me. Trust me. I'm God. I'm worthy of your trust. Trust me. Hope in me. Wait on me. Believe in me. Twice in the course of this chapter, twice in the course of this chapter, he asked, do you not know? Have you not heard? And then God continues by reminding us of the vast panorama of human history. That's something that he sees now, and he's always seen. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? And then, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. God was there from the beginning. It tells us in verse 21. It also tells us in verse 21, since the earth was founded, God was there. God is the everlasting God, it tells us in verse 28. The creator of the ends of the earth, it tells us in verse 28. Have any of you parents ever responded to a question of your kids with this statement? I've been around longer than you. When you were a kid, they probably said that to you too, didn't they? Now, just as that answer is not often satisfying to our children in that particular moment, God's similar answer to us in the midst of pain is also difficult. But it's true. It's true. Think of it this way. I've spent nearly 25 years in a media career before I was involved here at TCF, before I left my last business to work here at TCF, work full-time. I got a degree in radio and TV. I spent four years in radio I spent five years working for a cable TV network. I spent 15 years in self-employment, handling public relations for a variety of companies, for national and international media companies. I've had 60 national magazine articles published. I've had over 500 newspaper stories published. Now, I don't want this to sound like bragging. These are just the bare facts of what I did in my career before I started here. God wasn't bragging in Isaiah chapter 40 either. These are the things I did. Those are the things that he did. Now would you assume from these things that I know maybe a little bit of something about the media? You might, that would be a fair assumption unless I was really very good at faking it. Now what would you think if, say, Josiah Farrell came up to me? Okay, and he said, Coach Bill, let me tell you a thing or two about the media. Well, Josiah is a very bright kid, but he's 12. He doesn't have the knowledge I gained through nearly a quarter century in the media, And as many analogies go, of course, this one breaks down, too, because I learned, and nobody taught God anything. But it gives you an idea of what God's after here. He's been around since before the beginning of time. He can hold the oceans in the hollow of his hand. He can hold majestic mountains on scales. He weighs islands like not just dust, but fine dust. He can sit on a throne above the horizon of the world, and we look like grasshoppers to him. I'm glad he didn't say we're as smart as grasshoppers, too, but he could have said that in a comparative sense. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, a simple covering for him. If we would think it's at least a little bit presumptuous for Josiah, who's 12, to tell someone like me, who's had more than two decades of media experience, what the media business Is all about. How much more foolish is it of me, someone who's lived 54 years, has never been further south than Padre Island, Texas, to tell God, who's existed before there was time, who holds the earth as easily as I hold this little squishy ball, how to do anything? Who am I to tell God how to do anything? he flung the stars into the night sky. That's an incredible thought. Have you ever thought about that? I thought about that as I prepared this message. When we're over at my in-law's lake house in Arkansas, I like to go down to the lake shore after dark because there's no city lights, so you can see so many more stars out in the uh, wilderness, as it were, than you can see in the metro area. You can even see the Milky Way which is billions of stars in our own galaxy, so tightly packed together that if you just glanced at it and you didn't know what you were looking at, you'd swear it was a thin cloud in the sky. But it's not. It's the stars. There are way too many stars to actually count. But scientists have come up with varying estimates to how many stars there are. It's about ten times as many stars as grains of sand on all the world's beaches and deserts. That's one estimate. Another estimate is seven followed by 22 zeros, or more accurately, 70 sextillion. This was calculated by a team of stargazers based at Australian National University. Another estimate says, visible to the naked eye, there's a few thousand stars. In the Milky Way, there's around 10 billion, and at least 10 billion galaxies. So the sheer numbers are beyond our ability to grasp. But let's try to bring it a little bit closer to our level of understanding. Our sun is the closest star. When scientists calculate how big a star can be, they usually get answers like one-tenth the size of the sun for the smallest stars and about 50 times the size of our sun for the biggest stars. Now, our sun is 868,000 miles across. Do you know how wide the sun is compared with what we're familiar with? 109 Earths can be strung horizontally across the middle of the sun. So not only are there these billions and billions of stars, but they're also of a size that's almost impossible for us to imagine. The bottom line, we can only make sort of an educated guess. We can only guess about these things. But Isaiah tells us that God created each star and he knows each star by name. The word tells us here in Isaiah, he stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. Verse 18 has a central idea in this chapter. To whom would you compare God? Now, we human beings sometimes think in analogies. We seek comparisons within our own experience to help us understand things that are outside of our experience. Now, the Bible does this in speaking of God in human terms. We call that anthropomorphism. So does God literally stretch out the heavens like a tent to live in? Well, no. He doesn't need to. God doesn't need tents, does he? It's a literary device. It's designed to begin to help us understand his vastness, his greatness, his power, his omnipotence. All of our anthropomorphisms still, though, fall short. All of our analogies are inadequate. They only help us just catch a glimpse of our Creator. So the problem lies, when we see it this way, the problem lies in thinking, assuming that we have comprehended or fully understood the mind and spirit of God, so that we're in a position to make recommendations to Him or to correct Him in the way He thinks and the way he acts we look at human power and sometimes we feel awe, seeing the power that an individual can have in a nation yet nothing in human existence is as fragile as power haven't we seen that in the Middle East in recent events in the Middle East God can take it away in an instant in verse 23 it says he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing in that regard Hosni Mubarak is no different than Barack Obama or George Bush before him. Isaiah shows clearly the frailty and the temporary nature of humankind. But to counter this complaint, the argument in Isaiah looks not to the nature of humanity, but it looks to God. First, our God is a God of the long view. In verse 28, he's the everlasting God and his strategies point to eternity not to the moment. Israel complained. They complained that God they complained that God doesn't watch, they complained that he doesn't care. But our sense of time is different than God's sense of time. Think about this. We need more immediate satisfaction. Why else would we have developed microwave ovens? God's content to wait. We get tired of waiting. He doesn't grow weary as we do. He doesn't give up like we do. He moves forward through his plans and purposes through decades, through centuries, through millennia. Finally, God recognizes our frailty. Near the end of this chapter, he says, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. Now those of us who are older and can't quite run like we used to, can't maintain the energy of our youth, we can really appreciate this idea maybe even a little bit more. But if we hope in, if we wait on the Lord, on his plan, on his timing, and we must do that in trust, in confidence that he knows best, Isaiah tells us here he will renew our strength. This is the most familiar verse in this chapter. matter of fact, probably some of you Maybe just a few of you, because we have a lot of Bible readers here. But some of you heard that verse at the end and said, Oh, that's where that's from. You heard it in context, perhaps, for the first time. But verse 31 tells us, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Here the ideas overlap. Waiting hope and hopeful waiting. The people of Israel ultimately didn't always trust God. They can be like we can sometimes be. When we demand that God and his plans, the things he does, make sense to us, we can't judge God by our own perceptions, by our own experience. The perspective of God's greatness in size and in time requires waiting on and hoping for It requires us to trust. It requires us to trust. God's time is not our time. God's moment is not our moment. Those who can learn to wait on God's time and hope in God's way will renew their strength. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. God is a God of the long view. He's the God of the vast panorama of time and eternity. And he says to us, and he says this to us constantly, in the midst of life's biggest and smallest challenges, he says, trust me. Trust me. At the beginning and the end of Isaiah chapter 40, we see the positive message. God is coming. According to his own plan. But he is coming. He's not discouraged. He's not weak. He cares for his own who trust him. He cares for his own who wait for him. Jesus said to his disciples and to us in John chapter 14, verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God or believe in God. Trust also in me. And then the familiar passage from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Whatever we're troubled by, whether it's the seemingly insurmountable problems of the world or seemingly insurmountable problems in our very own home, let's determine to wait hopefully for the Lord. Let's respond in trust when God says, Trust me. Trust me. Let's determine to remember that he sees the big picture. He knows what's going on and that he will renew our strength. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way your word so clearly presents the reasons we can trust in you. Father, you are a great and mighty God. Your understanding is so far beyond what we can imagine. Help us, Father, in those moments when we struggle in our own lives, when we struggle with what's going on in the world around us, and we say, what's going on? Where's God in this? Help us to remember these things, Father, that you see the end from the beginning. Father, that you have a plan, that you have a purpose, and that's true for each of us as individuals, even as much as it's true for humanity and human history, Lord God. We're grateful for these truths. We're grateful that we serve a God who's a big and mighty God. And there's nothing that you cannot do. We're thankful for these truths. Father, help us to rest in these truths. And in our deepest, darkest moments, Father, when you say, trust me, help us to say in response to you, yes, God, I do trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.